Podcast Time Out for Mental Health is where we speak to sports figures, mental health experts, and leadership gurus about their experiences as it relates to mental health issues associated with depression, masculinity, and suicide. These sensitive topics are often swept under the rug, as detailed in my upcoming book, You Don't Have to Swallow Your Gun, a simple book for men about depression, masculinity, and suicide. Getting a handle on a man's masculinity will improve relationships, both personally and in the workplace. Everyone needs some support to ask for help when they feel off or a bit disoriented and foggy and don't know what is really going on with them. If they do not seek help, their behavior can turn dangerous, including alcoholism, drug and pill addiction, anger, fighting, violence, and in some cases, death by suicide. On Time Out for Mental Health, we want to uncover these issues so men and women can live a happy and healthy life, even though they do suffer from mental health issues. We're honored that Dan is sharing some of his time with us. Dan, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, Tim. Thanks, thanks for having me. Glad to be with you. And it's a beautiful fall Southern California day. So life is good. Good, good. I noticed that now you're working as a behavior health technician studying substance abuse counseling at UCLA, as well as working on your master's degree in counseling psychology at Pacifica, Pacifica Graduate Institute. All of that really piques my interest. Can you tell us a little about everything you currently do? Sure. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm busy again um, <laughs> after a while of not being um, busy. Uh, and really, it's, I, I'd say it's you know, based on my passion for you know, the industry of, of helping people. And um, so you know, I work at a substance abuse treatment facility called Cliffside Malibu. Um, and we treat people, you know, who are primarily diagnosed with substance use disorder, um, who also have a number of co-occurring disorders. Um, it happened to be the treatment center that I, I spent um, time in, um, in treatment as well, um, about three years ago. And so it, it's great to be, I wanted to be on the other side and give back and try to help people that were in the position that I was when I went there. And, you know, I'm a behavioral health technician, which means, you know, I basically run a house and, and uh, bring people in, um, make sure they get their meds, take them to meetings, um, counsel them, and just sort of help uh, develop um, through, the, through our program. And, uh, you know, having started that, I, you know, I, I wanted to do more and wanted to be more directly involved in counseling. And so that prompted me to do the UCLA program, um, which will uh, be a substance abuse counselor, a licensed one um, in California. And then just most recently, I'll be done with that in December. And then this fall, I started the master's program at Pacifica um, so that I can become an LMFT, a, a, a therapist, psychotherapist. And you know, my goal is to, again, help people um you know i don't want to i don't want to pigeonhole myself or um, i'm always open-minded but but to help people who are um trying to recover from substance use and other co-occurring disorders that's awesome really sounds good 
let me uh, frame our discussion and then we can drill down into specifics. Dan, you, you have an MBA in finance from Carnegie Mellon in Pittsburgh, as well as a law degree from the Pittsburgh School of Law. We also worked together at Fox, and you may not know that I used to live in Mount Lebanon. I don't think I told you that. No, I did not know that. Yeah. And did you ever I'm think... Lebo. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> uh, did you ever think you'd be such an influencer in all these areas that you were in previously, as well as the areas you currently are immersed in? No, I don't think so. I didn't really know what the word influence, influencer meant until a few years ago. So, um, no, you know, as a kid, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And, um, you know, I did, I went to Tufts University in Boston and sort of didn't have a, a goal and what I wanted to do with my life. And um, I, I come from a family of lawyers. So um, I went to law school, um, just basically because I didn't know what else to do. And then um, I wanted to do something different than my family. So I got my MBA as well. And that sort of started me into the career of, of, of being a lawyer, which is really, I think, probably, um, you know, the field that I excelled in most and spent most of my um, years before up until uh, 2012. Well, not many people can reach those heights in, in so many divergent areas. Why don't you tell us your story? Uh, how did you get here today? Huh. Uh, I'm 58 years old and you know, I grew up in Pittsburgh and in the seventies and um, you know, I, I think, you know, I, my father was my, my, my hero, my role model. He was, a, he was a, um, a successful lawyer, a trial lawyer. He was a judge. Um, and, you know, I wanted to be like him. And uh, I'd never thought that I could achieve his status and reputation. Um, I always had self-doubts about things like that. But you know, it turns out when I applied myself and I worked hard after, after law school and, you know, I got along with people. I did a good job. I worked hard and, um, you know, was, had a, a fair share of luck involved in how my career developed. Um, and, um, yeah, ultimately from on, on a piece of paper, it certainly, you know, I went a long way in, uh, in a field that, you know, I grew up in, a, in Pittsburgh, as I said, as, as a sports fan, a sports player, and, um, you know, uh, sports law was something that uh, I didn't, I never thought I'd end up in, but I did, so. Well, um, what drove you to get into the area of recovery after law? So, I... Um, Again, talking about, you know, my career trajectory and my family and my, you know, drive to succeed and be successful um, was really just, um, you know, an effort to be the man that my father expected me to be. And uh, I don't know that I ever had a, you know, passion for the work that I, that I, that I did until 2012. Um, but I was good at it and I was successful and, um, I, uh, quit my job in 2012 because I, I was burned out. I was tired. I was addicted, you know, at the beginning of my addiction to, to stimulants and drugs that, that I initially take, 
took to help me be more productive and in, in, in work. And uh, my father passed away in 2011. And I felt this enormous burden lifted off of my shoulders that I didn't have to, um, you know, get his earn his pride or get his respect anymore. So I quit my, my job thinking, you know, I'm going to live the life that I want to live. And, uh, you know, that didn't turn out so well. And I um, lost the identity that that job gave to me, which was a big part of my self-esteem. And I was aimless and grieving the loss of my father and then my mother a year after that. And um, I turned to drugs, you know, and drugs became a way to soothe the pain, to escape the reality, um, to make me feel better about myself. And um, I got caught up in the grips of, of addiction and I was totally unaware of what was happening to me. Um, and I was a master being a, a good lawyer, Tim, you know, I was, I was able to manipulate facts and stories and, and project that uh, things were all rosy in my life. But, and I did that for many years, um, but I um, was struggling and didn't really, and drugs um, helped me sort of like lose connection with people, uh, forced me to isolate uh, and, you know, I just didn't even know it. And I was slowly killing myself. And, and ultimately, you know, I ended up having a, um, a severe car accident, which was gruesome. And um, I should have died. And it's a miracle that I'm alive. And I believe that that was um, the wake up call for me um, to realize that my life had, you know, gotten off the track. Um, and that, you know, there was a reason for me to stay. And that reason was to be of service to other people. And so that's what I've spent the last three years doing, um, you know, have a wealth of wisdom from my, uh, from my um, being a professional and executive. Um, I'm now, you know, and I have a lot of life experience and now I'm merging the two together and I'm in school and I'm learning again, you know, it's, it's great to learn. You know, I think when I was in college, I just, you know, I crammed, I didn't really want to learn. I was more interested in my social life. And now I really feel a passion for the work that I'm doing. And that's why I'm, you know, passionate about the field that I'm, that I'm getting involved in. Sorry for that long winded answer, but. No, no, listen, I, I'm struck by the fact that both of us were so affected by the passing of our parents. I remember when my dad passed away, my drug use elevated dramatically. And I didn't realize until I got sober that I never really grieved the passing of my father totally. I didn't know how to handle it. And, you know, I was in, in these big executive positions and I was just, you know, going with the flow. But I, I wasn't being the best version of myself that I could be. And uh, it's very similar to in the timetable when we both, you know, hit the wall. So it, it's. Uh, yeah, grieving is, is, is incredibly hard and something, you know, I think we just have an innate um, desire or trait that wants to avoid it because it's yeah. painful. Yeah. And, you know, for me, you know, drugs took away. Um, the pain and and I was able to escape from that 
that feeling, that, that horrible feeling of grief, but that's something that if you don't go through it and don't let it happen naturally, um, it manifests in all sorts of different ways. And uh, so I, I'm, I'm in the process now of working with my therapist and, and grieving over, you know, losses that I, that I've, that I, that took place, you know, 10 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Well, during both of your careers, did you ever get down on yourself and feel that the work at that level was just too challenging for you and you felt overwhelmed? Uh, I'd love to say it never did, but it happened all the time. And I, um, you know, had, uh, as you know, like we worked in the, the, you know, crazy times in an industry that was forming and it was, it was craziness and we were all doing our best to make a good business out of things and doing things that were never done before. And, and, you know, none of us had the wisdom or the experience. We were, we were fairly young back then. And um, yeah, I questioned my, my abilities and my, you know, and to me, the way that I was raised was that what, you know, I couldn't appear to other people to be questioning my own abilities or, or showing people that I was overwhelmed unless I was like trying to get new hires and stuff like that to help me out. But, but yeah, that was something that I held inside because that was a sign of weakness. And um, I felt overwhelmed and I, and that's, I, I powered through it. I used, you know, coffee and I would stay up and not take care of myself and work on things like, trying to you know trying to make things perfect and manageable and uh but yeah i felt overwhelmed i'd say constantly and the and the fear you know of waking up every morning and going to work and knowing that i'm not prepared and what's going to happen today that fear you know and i don't appear you probably don't know but i have a social anxiety and i'm shy and i uh (laughs) You know, it's very difficult for me to feel like that I fit in and that I can communicate well. And to other people, when I tell them that now, they're like, that's ludicrous. Like you, I've never, never once sensed that from you. So I was just very good at hiding it. And, uh, and I didn't want people to see it. I didn't want people to see that I was weak. And I, um, you know, did my best just to hold it all in and project an image, um, of strength, you know, and uh, not showing that overwhelming feeling. The similarities in our stories are just shocking. I, I, I couldn't, I couldn't describe my feelings and emotions better than you just did. That's exactly on target for exactly how I went to work. I didn't know if I could do it, you know. Anyway, today. You deal with a lot of different people. Uh, they're different clientele. It, it's got to be a challenge working with all these personalities. How, how do you handle all of these various individuals? Uh, with a lot of empathy and a lot of um, honesty. And, you know, I care about people. I think that's something that I've always, always had. And, you know, I have to, there are people that come in our doors in treatment and, you know, just like I've done all my life, I make, I size somebody up, I make a 
judgment about them, um, you know, and think like they're never going to get well, or I don't like them, you know, stuff like that, which is those, I don't know what were those initial, it's just like how we're programmed to filter the, the chaotic world into these nice little packages. And, you know, what I found since I've been working in this field is that, you know, by the end of people's stay in our facility, like, I generally like everybody and they've surprised me. They, they completely obliterate those first impressions that I have of them. And, you know, to the extent they're wanting to get help, um, uh, then I see lots of progress and it's, it's so invigorating for me. And, you know, it just makes me so grateful to, you know, have found help for myself and to be still around here being able to give back like that. Um, you know, I do have challenges with people that, you know, are there because, um, you know, the court sent them or the parents sent them and they don't intend to make changes in their life. And, you know, they're, you know, having a free bed and meals and chefs cooking for them. And I get, you know, I, res I get resentments for that because that's something that I, you know, not part of my upbringing, but I have to set those aside and try to get through to people and try, you know, somebody might not be ready to change today, but if you can talk to them over the course and, and, you know, get to know them a little bit better, you might be able to get through to them. And that's all I can hope for with those people is that something that I say or help them with will help them, you know, find a better place. That's great. Okay, let's look at your nuclear family while you were growing up in Pittsburgh. Uh, how would you characterize your father as a man? Uh, you know, as I said, my father was my, my hero, my role model, my higher power. Um, he was a star athlete in college and high school. He was a Navy World War II veteran. He um, was looked like Paul Newman. He was handsome. Everybody loved him. He was a successful trial lawyer. He was a judge. He, um, you know, was kind and gentle, but, but, but I was, when I got into trouble, I would like go into his office and he basically have, you know, without the robe, be sitting behind a desk and it, it very much looked like a judge and interrogated me like a lawyer. And I was afraid. Um, he was strong. Uh, he was, um, I would say, caught up in his own um, life at that point. I was the youngest of four children. And I think my parents were very tired when I came around. And I, I'm, six, I'm four years younger than my next in line. And then they're all two years apart. And I think they, I was, they called me a pleasant surprise. <laughs> I don't think they were planning on me being around. But uh, I think they were tired, and I think my, my father, um, you know, poured himself into his reputation and being an upstanding member of community and the stresses of raising a, a family and paying for their education and stuff like that. He had enormous amounts of stress and anxiety, and all that veneer that I saw in him projected to the world, it must have been incredibly anxiety producing for him to maintain that persona, which he did most of his life. Um, he, uh, you know, he was 
very much sort of like you don't feel sad, you don't feel, you know, don't, you know, you think you have troubles, look at Johnny down the street, doesn't have a mother. And um, so I wasn't, we weren't allowed to feel sorry for ourselves or, or sad or, you know, the world was our oyster and all the things that they'd done for us. And so there was a lot of guilt and shame for, you know, feeling that way. So I think, you know, my father was a big influence in just sort of his, you know, trying to live up to what, you know, his standards and, and being a man, you know, and, 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 you know, I, I, I felt a lot of um, fear, um, but nothing, you know, he, he was never was abusive or, I mean, he got angry from time to time, but uh, a lot of it was just stuff that I internalized. And, and I also, you know, knew at a, you know, fairly young age that I was gay and um, my father, you know, being my higher power, he, the one fault he had is he was homophobic and he used homophobic slurs. He mm -hmm. called gay people faggots, fairies, pussies. And, you know, when we would drive down the street and he would see somebody who was, looked gay, he would make those comments. And to me, I felt they were being directed at me. So again, that was something that I decided at a very young age, I'm never gonna tell my father. I'm never gonna disclose this fact. I'll take it to my grave. And, you know, but I, I internalized that and that was part of my lifelong, you know, attempt to earn his pride. And, you know, at 15, he said to me, you know, your oldest sister married a Jew, your other sister married an uh, Italian and your, your brother married a Latina. What's left for you to do is bring home a black woman. And I'm thinking to myself, <laughs> You're going to be very surprised one day. But uh, it took me 12 years from that point when I was 27 before I was able to approach him and come out. And I thought I was going to lose him as a father, but I couldn't hold it in anymore. And, you know, he, he said the most beautiful words. He was like, you're my son. I love you. I don't understand it, but... Um, I want you to be happy. And if that's what's going to make you happy, that makes me happy. So a lot of it was just his ignorance and the time he grew up, he didn't know people. And, you know, I didn't know anybody that my role models, you know, people that were gay were Liberace and Elton John, you know, so I didn't identify with them and they weren't very good role models uh, for a strong right. masculine, you know, image that, that was important to my father. So, um, so it was a beautiful world. And then my father, you know, he spent his life like treating my partners like sons and giving to, you know, charitable organizations for LGBT, you know, so he, he was great, but it was, I, I just grew up fe fearing that I was, you know, and he was just an ignorant, you know, kid that grew up in the, you know, born in the twenties and, you know, you know, didn't know any better. So, um, you know, that, that's, that, that's my father. My mother was, um, you know, she was a great mother. She, um, struggled with, she was very intelligent and, um, you know, I think was a frustrated housewife. And I think my sisters put her through hell and, um, 
Um, I think she was tired by the time I came around and, and nurtured me as much as possible, but she turned to alcohol. Like when I was in um, high school, my siblings were all gone and she was a nightmare when she drank. She just, her personality changed and I had a lot of embarrassment over her and shame. And, you know, those were formative years for me. And, um, you know, my mother, uh, when I went to college, um, got sober and she died in 2014, you know, with 32 years of recovery. So awesome. So getting back to your dad, other than that moment when you talked to him about coming out, did he ever discuss emotions, feelings, what it was to be a man with you? Uh, he, no. I mean, he, he, he would point to examples, whether it was in film, like he was a big, you know, John Wayne fan. I mean, and he was like sport. I mean, my father, you know, thought sports idols were gods, you know, from Terry Bradshaw to Arnold Palmer to, um, and my grandfather was a, a was a, a sports official and officiated at the Rose Bowl and, mm-hmm. Um, they just grew up, it was sports and masculinity were tied together and playing sports, watching sports, knowing about sports. Feelings were just something that you just dealt with and you, you just stood up and be a man and don't fret over it. You know, you, and, you know, so I think it was more just how he handled himself. And I think he was very... You know, he had a lot of emotions, but I think he he grew up in a time where, you know, it was even less permissive to show them. And I think he struggled and and he cried, you know, in, in our presence. Like he he would cry. And um and, but he would never do that in public and he um was a very sensitive, warm man, you know. And um it's it's a shame that he he wasn't able to, uh, you know, to, to let those go and, and had to hide a lot of that too. But yeah, I don't think he, he really spent a lot of time, you know, telling me how to be a man. It was just sort of like, and you know, we, I would say he was um, sexist in a way, like my, my brother and I went to, to prep school. Um, my sisters went to a public school that emerged with other um uh school districts in the state and they was too many kids and they lost their accreditation and i remember him telling them like college wasn't that important for them like they would just they would just find somebody to marry you know and it it sounds so ludicrous to say that today but i i mean that that wasn't uncommon back then and i think he you know his pride and joy were his sons and they were going to be as successful as he was and and that i think drove my brother and I to, to be successful. We touched on this earlier, you know, today's masculinity norms, I call it the good old boy network. They may have prevented you from asking for help uh, for fear of being labeled as not a real man or not masculine. So when did you get consciousness of that and see that you needed to make a shift? Uh, I think I, um, you know, obviously in the last three years, um, in recovery and, you know, 
learning that on you know the truth will set you free and the intimacy of being honest with people and showing your vulnerabilities is healthy and i i don't think i ever had that that perspective of it before um i think you know i've always been able to be sensitive and empathetic but you know i wanted to be a man and i also was hiding this you know of fear of, of, you know, not being a man because I'm gay, you know, and like, and that's sort of what I grew up with. And so I was sort of doubly protective of, of not showing the weaknesses or, um, or the attributes of being, you know, that aren't masculine, that are more feminine. Yeah. I, I, I was diagnosed with, uh, severe depressive disorder that's reoccurring and that's what sparked my addictions according to my doctor and um i when i did self-discovery in in my 12-step work i found that i was abused as a child uh physically mentally emotionally verbally now, I don't think you said you weren't, nobody ever struck you, but, you know, do you think emotionally or verbally there was any abuse going on in your home growing up? There was, I would say, um, a large degree of chaos, which, um, again, because of my father's stature and my mother's sort of obsession with, like, looks and appearances and and privacy, um, we weren't allowed to talk about what went on in our family. Um, nothing, you know, there, there was a lot of sort of, you know, I'd say we're a good waspy family and everything seems to be going relatively well. And then there's a giant blow up. And that, I, I think would, you know, people would say things that in the heat of anger that were, were very unproductive and hurtful. Um, I don't, I never really considered that emotional abuse. Um, I, I sort of think it was just the chaos and projecting some image and, and being so concerned about, you know, what people thought of us as a family. And, and, you know, we, my mother would like dress us up to go to church and we, we, we had to have manners and, and, you know, there was a lot of structure. And then when we got home, you know, there'd be, you know, my mother would like scream at us and then the phone would ring and she'd pick it up and say, you know, hello, this was fun. I mean, there was no <laughs> evidence of, of her just having this. So I think it was the chaos and the, um, just not understanding like, why can't we be ourselves? And why can't, why can't, why does it matter? Like, I remember thinking that back then um, I didn't have any power or um, ability to change it. Um, and I, you know, lived most of my life, you know, the way they, that I was raised, you know. Right. It's funny how that happens. Yep. Well, I talk about this in my book, and I did some research. And it said that mental health or, or depression issues, if they go unchecked, they can manifest into risky behavior. So I'm curious whether 
when you were growing up, did you display any of that risky behavior with alcohol or drugs or pills or stealing or fighting, stuff like that? Sure. I, th- I mean, I, um, I think I, from early on, exhibited addiction issues. Like, I, I remember, like, taking my family's al- my allowance for doing chores and running to the, the drugstore and buying um, candy and, like, like $10 worth of candy or whatever it was. And I would eat that whole thing by the time I went home and I would like crash. And so I, I had these, I always had that and that, you know, the, the feeling of not fitting in or, or feeling alone. And I think I, you know, through the candy experience and then, you know, in later years in junior high and high school, you know, drugs were not only sort of, helped me fit in because of the peer pressure, but, um, you know, put me on the same level as everybody else. And, um, you know, the experience of being able to have fun with somebody without, and getting rid of that fear of people and, and not, not feeling, you know, enough or being able to hold my own, um, you know, drugs were very, um, helpful helpful in, you know, making me feel at ease, making me more, make me, you know, the, the illusions, the, the fiction that I thought drugs were making me more productive, funnier, you know, smarter. I used to think that I had a photographic memory when I smoked pot. Like, I don't know how that, how that uh, thought got into my head, but it was basically because it was taking away the fear that I had. And now I recognize I still have those same fears, like, you know, the fear, the natural fear of like two hours ago, knowing that I'm doing this and starting to feel like, oh, what am I going to say? How am I going to relate? I'm not going to be able to answer his questions. And then knowing now at my wise old age, like I can get through that fear just by facing it or walking through it. I don't need the drugs or the alcohol. And I know now that it wasn't the drugs and alcohol that made my performance. I just got over my fear. Those helped me get over the fear. But back then, like it was a, it's like the rat hitting the bar, you know, like if I smoke a joint and go to a party, I'm going to have fun. So I just did that. I never, I never stopped doing that. I I never, I took speed for studying because I thought that made me more focused. Um, I was the captain of the swim team in my high school and we were swimming my public school, Shaler, which was like the best in the state. I was the captain. I gave in high school. I hate to, I hate to say this publicly, but it's just part of my story. I gave everybody on my team a, a black beauty, a hit of speed and we beat Shaler like the net state rank champion. So that was just another example of like, I thought drugs worked, you know, and, and they, and they absolutely did for, for, for a while. And, um, you know, I think they helped me face fears for a while, but um, I didn't understand the dangers or the, or have the confidence that I could do all this stuff without drugs. I mean, today, like I sing karaoke sober. I mean, who does that? Like, you know, the things that I, when I got to recovery, I thought my life, like I knew I needed to give up drugs and alcohol to be, to live. 
but I thought that I was going to be sad and the world was over and life was bleak and I'm just going to have to get through it sober to live. And I ultimately wanted to live. And, you know, I never envisioned like that life could be as beautiful as it is now. And um, that I notice things and that I'm connected and that I can, you know, that I can, you know, enjoy things more than I ever did in my life. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, during that time, did you ever think that you were going through depression or some type of mental health issue? And did you do anything about it? Did you keep it to yourself? Did you ask for help? What did that look like? Yeah, I think I had, um, you know, depression and anxiety. Um, and, you know, until I got to recovery, I, I don't know that I ever was able to figure out, you know, where that stemmed from. I have some depression in my family. Um, uh, and I certainly had depressed periods in my life, short-term periods. And whether or not those were, you know, drug-induced or, you know, working, you know, working around the clock and not sleeping-induced, I don't know. And anxiety, and I was, I think when I was 40, I started having panic attacks um, and insomnia, which was uh, like, and I was, that's probably when I was working with you and we were like, there was no time for, um, you know, that. Like, so I went to a, a therapist or a psychiatrist and a pharmacologist and they put me on um, Xanax and Ambien and those worked. I was like, you know, he's like, just say it. Actually, my father told me about Xanax. I remember he, because I used to talk to him about my fear of public speaking. And he said, oh, I take this little white pill. <laughs> and before I get up and give a closing argument, and it just takes away a little bit of that anxiety, right? Yeah. I'd say this was in the mid, mid, mid to late 80s, early 90s. And, you know, I think it was Klonopin. I don't even know what it was. Maybe it was Valium. But so... Um, I didn't know what to do about it, but when I took, I, I couldn't sleep and I would have these panic attacks in the middle of work and I, where I would have to shut my doors and I, you know, if Chase Carey was calling or Tony Ball was calling, like I couldn't deal with it. Like I, I felt like I was dying and medication, you know, helped. But when the problem with the Xanax was when I didn't take one, I would have a panic attack. And same with the Ambien. If I took it, I'd sleep. But if I didn't, I wouldn't sleep. So for, I'd say, a year and a half, I was hooked on those. And I, I um, took it upon myself. I was like, this isn't good. You know, like, I don't like that feeling when I don't take a medication that I'm ridden, overridden with anxiety. Like, there's something wrong with me. And I weaned myself off of those. It took about three months. But I weaned myself off of those. And it kind of solved the problem. And that began this fiction that I had this power over like medications and that I could take them responsibly. And when I started going overboard with them, I could just quit. And, you know, I did that. I did that with cocaine. I, you know, after being caught with it many times, like I quit, you know, and then, but, but, you know, it, things escalated and I got older and, 
my, I am not as resilient and I need sleep. And, you know, all those things, I think, um, the drugs were masking those. And, you know, I had the shame and the guilt of, of growing up, you know, hiding my, my sexual identity, my, my orientation. And, you know, until I got to recovery, I think that I realized like, you know, my primary problem and, you know, I didn't deal with grief. I didn't deal with all these issues, um, um, in the proper way. Um, I've been lucky, Tim, in that, you know, I was on antidepressants um, for a few years and that, that helped me get, get, get through some of the stuff. But my, I think my primary diagnosis was, you know, substance was addiction. And, um, you know, I don't take any medications today. Um, I still get um, anxiety and I get depression. I get, there are days when I wake up and I, you know, again, you know, I, I project this image, but I, there are days when I wake up and I don't want to do anything. And I want to just lay in bed and watch football and curl up into a ball and just like, and I sink back to that. Why is the world against me? Why am I, you know, why is everybody else doing well with those resentments? Like, and I'm the only one that's here and so-and-so's an idiot and they're now the CEO of some, you know, like all those things. And I start feeling sorry for myself and that's a pattern I've had since a kid. And um, today, you know, I use other ways, you know, I try to eat well, I take care of myself, I exercise, I acknowledge and talk to people and I go to meetings and, and you know, those are my, my medications today. Like that's, um, that's my only choice. And, you know, but I, it'd be an illusion and it would be false for me to say that, you know, I'm free of depression or anxiety because I, I, I just am not, but I just manage it much better today. And I'm grateful for that. Yep. I'm with you. All right. Let's project into the future. Let's imagine one day that you have a child. How do you think you would be as a father? Easy, tough, lose your cool, yell and scream, show emotions and love. Given your background, what, what do you think? Uh, I'd like to think that I'd be the perfect father. I, <laughs> I, I um, you know, I have a dog. I have nieces and nephews um, that are now grown. Um, so I, I, you know, sort of had kids without, you know, having to take care of them all the time. But, um, you know, and, and, I, and I had the luxury of being the, you know, the, the uncle in Hollywood who got them tickets for things and spoiled them. I mean, I spoiled the, my nieces and nephews, whatever they wanted to eat, wherever they wanted to go whoever they wanted to meet, you know, I, I facilitated it. And so, and I have a dog now that I pamper and, you know, and I'm worried about him getting, he's going to go and get hit by a car. So I don't know. I think I would be, I think I'd like to think that I would have a lot of empathy for my child because I have a lot of empathy for the 10 year old Dan, Danny, you know, like he, had a lot of feelings and he, you know, had a lot of shame that wasn't his to own. It was societal. It was, you know, the homophobia, whatever it was, but I have a lot of empathy for him. And, you know, I think I, I would be a little more understanding or, um, but I don't know. I'm sure I would, I would, I w I'm sure I would 
smother i don't know i just i really don't know tim and that's maybe why i don't have a kid because uh, i'm not sure i i'd like to think i'd be perfect but i i i i, I think i'd be a, a long way from that okay just a couple more questions on your your current work at cliffside um so do you consider that you have a style that you use or what's your central message that you're trying to get across to people you deal with? I try to get across, I try to, I think one of my skills and, um, you know, God given gifts is that I, um, I do relate well to people. Um, I can talk to people. Um, I think um, at an age and have had a life experience where I understand that, you know, it's, not vital to cross every T and dot every I as far as like documentation and stuff like that. Like uh, my skill is connecting and getting through to people. And I do that really um, much the way that I've done it all my life. But today I am honest, I'm as honest with them as I am with you. And I tell that, you know, when something comes up to them and I see them struggling, I generally do relate to them because, and, and if they talk about it, it's gonna, they're going to see in a group of people or with me that other people have gone through that same thing. Other people have that same feeling. And so I just try to be as vulnerable and open as I can be and show my, all my flaws and lovable or not, you know, and it's just part of my story. And it's something I think that I am so relieved to be able to do now because while I was able to project that image all my life, I, I wasn't honest with a lot of things and I, I didn't show, I wasn't vulnerable because I was afraid of what people thought of me. And today, you know, and I don't know if that's just because I'm older or I'm in recovery. I don't care if somebody doesn't like me or if they want to judge me that I'm gay, like those things don't hurt me anymore. And, uh, I just want to lead as an example and just show that you can be who you are and show what you're struggling with and people will be there for you. Very true. Very true. Okay. Last question. We touched on masculinity. What, how would you define masculinity? Yes. So that was that question that I saw beforehand. I was like, Oh my God, masculinity and I'm gay. And like all that stuff came together and, you know, obviously I grew up um, thinking of masculinity as, you know, very male, very um, sports oriented, leader, re reputable in the community, um, hardworking. But today I, I think it's a beautiful word. I love it. And I think all that stuff is important, but I think you've got to mix in you know, vulnerability, sensitivity, empathy, um, honesty, um, and you mix all those things together with strengths and leadership. And, you know, the result, I think, is integrity. You know, it's just like living, you know, living with integrity, to me, is the essence of masculinity. Excellent. Well, as you can see, Dan's story is quite remarkable. He's a self-made man of courage, bravery, and giving to his community a true role model for our world today. Before we end, I just wanted to see if you had any final thoughts. 
Not at all, Tim. I made it through. I'm happy. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Well, I look forward to continuing our dialogue, Dan, moving forward, so I can learn from you, so I can help others. Thanks again, Dan. Listeners, please look out for our podcast, Time Out for Mental Health, wherever you get your podcasts, and keep your eyes out on my upcoming book, You Don't Have to Swallow Your Gun, a simple book for men about depression, masculinity, and suicide. Please contact me for speaking engagements through my website, timcrass.com. Have fun, everybody.